Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Editor's Desk with me, Felicity Duncan, and with Business Editor-in-Chief Alec Hug, right here on Business Radio. Last week, Alec, we talked about uh, BizNews' relationship with one of the big uh, stories of the year, and I would like to pick up on a similar theme today, and that's talking about uh, the role that BizNews has played in uncovering what has come to be known as the Stellenbosch Mafia, and I think we can credit our own uh, BizNews friend David Shapiro with the uh, origination of that name. Uh, the Stellenbosch Mafia, specifically a group of uh, very powerful and wealthy individuals based in and around Stellenbosch, who over the recent, so over the last, call it four or five years, have uh, been revealed to have been engaged in some very dirty business. Yeah, it's, well, it's it's interesting. The whole Stellenbosch Mafia name was uh, done in jest by Shapiro on a interview that we had probably 15 years ago, and it was not meant in a negative sense. Uh, we were referring to Yanni Muton, who was building a good business at that stage. GT Ferreira had moved there, one of the co-founders of First Rand. Of course, Johan Rupert and the whole Rembrandt family is uh, Rem Grove family is there. So. It, but it has evolved into the a popular discourse. Stellenbosch Mafia has become a, a no longer a, a phrase of endearment, almost to something that is that sounds really dark and and dirty and manipulative, etc. Thanks to Bell Pottinger, the unlamented departed UK uh, once biggest uh, PR agency there, who worked for the Guptas and and propagated that within South Africa. Uh, what is interesting is that Peter de Toy, who's the perfect guy to actually have written a book on this, I went in and uh, did lots of investigation and asked the question, is this, a, are, is this a malevolent group of people? Are they doing bad to South Africa? Uh, are they um, too powerful and, and over-controlling? And the reason I, I think Peter is the perfect person to write it is he went to school at Paul Ruiz, which is the it's the high school in Stellenbosch, a very good, strong rugby high school as well. Rugby, uh, an integral part of that whole society. He also went to Stellenbosch University, which for many years is the, has been the nursery of, of rugby players born in South Africa. So he, he's integrated into the society. And he also got interviews with people who otherwise wouldn't really talk. You know, for me to sit with Johan Rupert for two days to unpack his view on the world – would be an almost impossibility. I'm not. Fr- I'm not Afrikaans. I'm not from Stellenbosch. Uh, I'm not one of his pals or perceived pals, and that's just the way it is. Whereas Peter de Toy, coming from that world, got to spend two days with Rupert to after he'd done that appalling interview on Power FM, which I think sent most of the country against him, and and unpacked why he did the interview in the first place. And what he thinks about Stellenbosch and he thinks about the future, etc. So it was, he, he was the right guy. Whether Peter de Toy um, is going to remain uh, friendly or, or whether <laughs> Stellenbosch is going to remain receptive to his views is another thing. It's a very good book. It's, it's, a, it's almost a tell-all. It exposes a lot of things that uh, the rich and powerful in Stellenbosch would have not wanted uh, him to have written. And that's what gives the book its appeal. It is the it was the best-selling book in South Africa on its release, the week of its release, and it continues in that position. It's one of those must-read books to understand 
a very important part of the South African business scene. You know, I think that it's a sign that the success of this book and the um, uh, number, vast number of books that have been written about the state capture scandal and all of this, it's a sign of South Africa becoming a, a more normal, healthy, transparent democracy because – you know, call it, what, 30, 40 years ago, South Africa was a place of censorship. It was a place where no one, or not no one, but people were afraid to speak truth to power. And there was just, it was just an opaque society. There was a lot of sort of shadowy, powerful figures who we didn't know much about. And I think that the success of this book really shows how South Africa is evolving more towards a transparent society where we identify and seek to understand the people in power and what they're doing. And, you know, that kind of sunshine, whether it's shone on business, whether it's shone on politics, whether it's shone on what goes on at the South African Rugby Football Union... All of that is uh, really healthy and is the way to build a more stable and ultimately a more prosperous society. Because one thing that we know, of course, is that markets only work when information is uh, available and, and flows freely. You're so right. It, there's a, almost a, a, a conflict that's happening in, in society in South Africa and in the world between power and force. Power comes from legitimacy. It comes from uh, consciousness. It comes from understanding what is happening around you. It comes from empathy and, dare I say, Ubuntu. Force comes from a position of ego, a position of I do it my way or the highway. I know best. I know what, you should, what should happen. And if you have a look through history, the great tragedies uh, for mankind have been due to people who action force rather than power. In South Africa, you've got a president at the moment who, who could apply force very easily in the way that Jacob Zuma was trying to apply it before, but he doesn't. He's not made that way. He's a person who's applying power, the power of, of uh, uh, unity, of intellect, etc. Whereas in many other parts of the world right now, you've got um, Donald Trump, a great example. He uses force. He says, I'm going to smash the, uh, the, the Chinese by putting tariffs onto their goods, etc. And it's a, it's a very, very important state of mind battle that's happening in the world right now. And South Africa, fortunately, right now at this point, is going much more towards the power kind of application, open society, uh, questioning those who are in positions of great power, uh, should they uh, be accountable or not. And it's a very, very healthy thing, Felicity, that you've put your finger on. Very healthy indeed, even though, of course, it it can be a slow process as we're learning. And, you know, uh, at Business we follow a lot of the long-running developments in things like, for example, the um, role that Hogan Lavelle's played in uh, the, the state capture scandal. And I know we had some news out on that uh, recently with uh, Paul O'Sullivan telling us a little bit about how transparency ultimately has caught up with Hogan Lavelle's and has, has had consequences for it. It's an amazing story, this one. Hogan Lavelle's is one of the big legal firms in the world, run out of the United States. They've got a big office in Europe, uh, in London. And a significant office in South Africa where they merged 
when when a lot of the professional firms came into South Africa, they did deals with local companies. And there was a company here called Routledge McCullum, which became Routledge Modise, which merged with Hogan Lovells. And they were intimately involved on the side of the baddies, if you want to call it that, uh, during the Zumi era. They were um, obstructionists in using the legal system to to obstruct the uh, the, the progression of uh, very obvious uh, legal cases. Um, I suppose they would argue that everybody deserves their day in court, and even if a person is evil, uh, they should have a lawyer. Uh, the argument that you would come if you come again from from the the power perspective rather than the force perspective, the power perspective would be hang on a minute, you are liable. If you're going to be uh, protecting somebody who is patently uh, destructive to the system, then you must pay the consequences. You must take the consequences of that. KPMG are taking the consequences. Bain are paying the consequences. McKinsey are paying the consequences. And now Hogan Lovells is the latest of the big multinationals that has been brought to account. And it's been a, a, a an effort between... Peter Hayne, Lord Peter Hayne, who grew up in South Africa and had to leave uh, during the apartheid era because of his anti-apartheid parents, in fact, having to flee for their lives, and by Paul O'Sullivan, uh, who's the forensic investigator in South Africa who's done so much amazing work. And they have targeted Hogan Lovells, and they've gone at them. And in this past week, Hogan Lovells um, announced that it is now only going to have a small office in South Africa. Instead of having around 100 lawyers which is a very big business, they will have around 20. And that the balance of those lawyers are going to be going off and starting an independent firm. Paul O'Sullivan says that's not good enough. I'm going to be like a hyena tracking a kudu. And the new new, um, Hogan levels, in other words, the independents who've gone off on their own, he says, I'm not going to let you rest until you apologize and pay back the money. So that's the kind of thing that, that we as the public can now see and uh, there are champions around who are making sure that the those who did profit from state capture in whatever way it was will be brought to book. Well, that's what you want to hear also, because I think that so often with these things that happened with um, Bell Passenger uh, in the UK, you know, the the firm got into trouble for the, the Many, many things they did wrong and, uh, you know, then was dissolved. But of course, all the people who made up the firm, who are ultimately the ones who engaged in the problematic behaviors, just moved on into new roles and formed a new firm and carried on the sort of bell passage away, as you, as it were, uh, just with a different brand name. And it sounds like we're seeing something similar happening here. And I think that, that, what uh, Paul is saying is important is that, you know, ultimately we have to uh, bring the people involved to account and not just be satisfied with the dissolution of a brand name when ultimately it's not that the the registered name did anything. It was really the people who were the ones who were out there doing uh, the things that, you know, uh, caused the, the firm's downfall. Mm. So it's, it's nice so, to hear. Yeah, that is so relevant. But go back to 2008. In the run-up to 2008, the great financial crisis, Mm. you had bankers who were making fortunes by taking excessive risk. When the excessive risk was shown to be so and the system virtually almost collapsed, the bankers who had made all these bonuses and banked lots, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, or billions of dollars were bailed out by taxpayers who have still got a much higher uh, government debt to service 
than they'd had before. And those bankers who bought, uh, bought the fancy houses and the fancy cars and, and lived on the edge, there was, there was no consequence for them. And this is something that the world is changing towards. Millennials don't accept this, and, and, and they shouldn't. Um, older people have almost been uh, conditioned into believing that, particularly in a country like South Africa, you know, the doctor is right and he will tell you or she will tell you what you should take and then you just believe it. The politician knows best. The, uh, the system, the establishment is right. That's not the case always. Uh, certainly, that in many cases, that's not true. They don't know best. Sometimes they are acting through um, motives that are not benign. And as a consequence of this, the world is changing and bringing the people, the individuals, more and more to account. It saddens one, though, that 10 years ago, when the great financial crisis occurred, that those who'd caused it, most of them walked away with all their ill-gotten gains and society had to pick up the tab. Maybe we've learned something from that. One can only hope. Uh, Alec, just before I let you go, I wanted to pick on something a little lighter, uh, just to let our listeners know that we have seen enormous popularity in an article that we had this week about fasting. And uh, fasting essentially is the, or intermittent fasting, is the practice of um, eating normally part of the time and then spending part of the time in a fast, kind of like what people in uh, religious contexts do, where they don't take any food and drink only water for a period of time. And now this has become a massively popular fad diet. Um, I know in the United States, it's it's everywhere right now, apparently so in the UK, um, supposed to have all kinds of benefits. But as you pointed out, it just seems like a couple of years ago, uh, banting was the thing that was wildly popular. And now we switch to fasting. And to me, it seems like this is just a tacit uh, uh, acceptance of the fact that nothing works and we have to keep trying. Maybe, maybe, and maybe they've got something. I, I do know a lot of people who uh, lost a lot of weight on banting. Um, I don't know if they necessarily put it back on again. But sensible eating is something that the, the world is moving towards. I'll tell you, something that I think about with, with all of this, and particularly with fasting, Felicity, is that we have these incredible bodies. They are unbelievably powerful and, and you can see that from the placebo effect for instance if we have if our mind believes something our bodies will address it and for years we've gone on to, uh, on a path where we've believed again other people know better so a doctor gives you a pill but the pill might not necessarily be what is need what is necessary for your body but if you just left it to your own body and allowed your own body in many cases to address these things, that usually is the better result. Because we, if we feel, we, we can feel that. And I think with fasting, what the philosophy is here, certainly in that Wall Street Journal story that we, we published in Premium that has done so well, was is that if you give your body time to recover, if you give it, it is such an amazing mechanism, an organism, that it will address many of the things that otherwise might cause you uh, uh, problems, but if you're going to just if if you you're just going to keep uh, keep your digestive system rolling, for instance, eat late at night, eat early in the morning, uh, drink lots of coffee, etc., and you put your digestive system or you put your body under unnecessary unnecessary strain, then you are going to pay the consequences. So, yeah, I, I, it 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 is a fad. 
but there might be something in this. There might be something in this that is, uh, again, as we go on this, this journey of discovery as a, as a species, we realize that there's a whole lot that we don't know that we don't know. And as we start learning more about it, even in things like this incredible thing that, that, that we have that, that our souls are housed in, if you like, um, even if we look at that, it, it, it is a, it's an exciting time to be alive, isn't it? It definitely is. And I, I sincerely hope I maybe sounded a bit facetious there, but I hope that we're able, all of us, to chart a path to a healthier life because it certainly is something that's very difficult. I read recently a, a, there was a study released about contestants from The Biggest Loser and, uh, you know, they achieved spectacular weight loss and after the end of the show, they all carried on with their, not all, of course, but many of them carried on exercising very hard and sticking to their diets. And yet so many of them gained the weight back. And the uh, science part of the study showed that their m- metabolic rates had collapsed, really, and that um, something about the process of losing that weight, their bodies rejected it and wanted to go back to what the body felt was a normal weight. And so the body cut the metabolism to try and get people back to that weight that it felt was the right one, whether or not, of course, it was a healthy weight. And, you know, just reading the struggles of those individuals, it's such a a sad and and difficult situation. And one really hopes that we can figure this out because, uh, you know, I read a great quote that said, you know, cause saying that obesity is the result of overeating is like saying alcoholism is the result of overdrinking. This is true, but it's not very helpful to the people experiencing these things. And our solutions cannot be, well, just drink less, well, just eat less. That's not, not helpful. Um, and so, of course, I hope that, that there's uh, a path for everyone to find a way to health because right now it seems like we don't have a very good set of directions coming from uh, medical quarters uh, when you see people with these struggles. Yeah, and the way that uh, many of these dread diseases have been ex- expanding, uh, diabetes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Maybe it's it's all about habits. It's all about parenting. It's all about the early ages. You know how you how how you start in life is often how you continue. And I guess that that puts such a premium on parenting, which is again something that we are understanding much much better today than we ever did in the past. So. Uh, mankind is making progress. Sometimes we don't see it because it, it's slow, but we are moving in the right direction. That's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to read a transcript of this interview, there is one up in the premium section. Uh, remember, you can sign up for premium, just five pounds a month, and that gives you access to our great content and to the Wall Street Journal. So sign up for a trial and check that out.